by authors. Today I want to get back into Galatians 6. Last week I talked about sowing and reaping, and I spoke a lot about the fact that sowing is really a matter of surrender into God's hands. And it's like when a farmer plants a seed, that sometimes when we surrender into God's hands, the harvest that comes from that isn't always right away, is it? It usually takes a while, which is Paul's whole point in Galatians here. I want to read this scripture again, and I want to continue today with this idea of sowing and reaping, but I want to take it a step further today. I want to talk not so much about surrendering situations to God like I did last week. I want to talk a little bit more about what it means to surrender ourselves to God and what all of that is supposed to lead to. Let's read here in Galatians chapter 6 again, starting in verse 7. Paul writes, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that also shall he reap. For he that sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And getting back to that thought of the matter of it taking time once you sow, Paul says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not, or in other words, if we don't give up. And he says in verse 10, And therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially unto them that are of the household of faith. And then Paul continues, and this will begin to be a little bit about what I'm going to talk today. We'll begin to talk about it. He talks about what a large letter he's written uh, unto them with his own hand. And then he talks about a little bit about circumcision and the like. But I want to get to verse 14, which is going to relate to this sowing and reaping. He says, But God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but what does matter, in other words, is a new creature. So as I mentioned, uh, this scripture is going to lead us today into talking about what it means to surrender ourselves to God. Really, I've entitled today, Letting Go to God. What does it mean to truly let go to God? What, what does that lead to? And maybe more importantly, how do you let go to God? I don't know about you, but I understand that we need to let go to God, but isn't sometimes the difficult part understanding how to do that? How do you make that work? And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Now, just off the top, and this is a little bit of a point of review perhaps, Letting go to God really is pictured in this whole idea. And we saw a little bit of this last week. It's pictured in this idea of sowing to the Spirit of God. Think of, just for a moment, yourself, your life, as the seed that you're going to sow. It's in your hand. It belongs to you. And really, in Adam, we hold on to that, don't we? We hold on to our lives. We are in control. 
we really in Adam don't know anything else to be but in control. It's sort of the nature of things, isn't it? It's the way we think, it's the way we act, and until light comes, it's all we're going to do. So this seed can be likened to our very own lives, to our very own selves. It's in our hands. Now, what happens when you sow that seed and we're sowing it to the Spirit, we're sowing it to God, we're letting go to God? We let go of that seed to sow it, don't we? I don't know of any farmer that digs a big hole and buries himself in order to get a crop. He sows a seed and there is a very real sense there that the farmer lets go of the seed and then that seed, if we're talking about our life in this particular example, that seed, what happens to it? Well, it goes into the ground and it gets buried, doesn't it? So in other words, as we saw a little bit last week, when we let go to God, we're essentially letting go of our lives, letting go of our control, letting go of our hold on our lives. It only makes sense if you're letting go, you're not holding anymore. That's the whole point, isn't it? But notice that it goes under the ground, it undergoes, in other words, a death, and it is buried. And we saw last week from 1 Corinthians 15 how God then determines what becomes of us. Now, if you think through that analogy, it only makes sense. You can't hold and let go at the same time. You can't be in control of what becomes of you if you're going to trust God to determine that. You can't define things uh, as opposites of each other and say that you're, you're, you're not contradicting yourself. You, w you would be. No, if you're letting go of your life, of yourself, into the hands of God, you are very much, as Jesus said on the cross, into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. And at that point, you are allowing God to determine what is going to be raised up eventually. And what is going to be raised up, yes, is His will, but there's something even more important that's going to be raised up. And I touched on this last week, but it is here that I want to start. I want to turn back to a scripture that I turned to last week, James 5. And I want to pursue this a little bit more as the basis for today to start with. In James 5, verse 7, James talks about this idea of sowing and of reaping, and it's an exhortation. And as I said, last week we talked more about things that we surrender to God. We're going to see here that this involves a whole lot more than things. He says there, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Mentioned last week that this is not really talking about the second coming. This word coming in the Greek is parousia. It means the revelation of or the presence of God. So what James is getting at here, if you see where this is going, he's not talking about Jesus at this point coming back on the clouds as in the second coming. He's talking about being patient unto the revelation of Jesus to you personally in your heart. I've given a number of messages, if you'll recall, about the fact that the fundamental purpose of God in His people is to create us in Christ Jesus. It is to form us in Christ Jesus. It is to reveal to us Jesus Christ in our hearts in a way that will completely change us and change what motivates us and governs us. We're talking about here 
really what Christianity is. Christianity is Christ in us, and as an extension of that, a revelation personally of Jesus to us. As Peter confessed, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said back to him, Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. Peter, my Father in heaven has. How many see we all have to have that personal revelation? It doesn't come by flesh and blood. It comes by the Holy Spirit. And I've mentioned so many times John chapter 14, 15, and 16. What is the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus said would be when the Comforter came? Well, add them all up. And what you get is to reveal Jesus to the individual. That we may know Him. That we may be set free by that knowledge of Him. This is the harvest that James is talking about. And it is the harvest that God wants in our lives. To cut to the quick, if you sow yourself to God, if you let go to God, if you let go of yourself to God like a farmer lets go of a seed, you better believe the first thing that's going to happen is a death. But in that resurrection that ultimately will come, it's not just going to be a resurrection of things, it's going to be a resurrection of Christ in you. When the Bible talks about us being raised in Christ, it's not just a legal truth, it includes that. But it's talking here about a rising up or a revelation of the living Christ who is in you by the Holy Spirit. So that you and I may know Him. This is what James is talking about. It's what Paul is getting at. Be patient, therefore, unto the revelation of the Lord. He says, Behold, the husbandman waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience for it until he receives the early and latter rain. Be you also patient and establish your hearts for the revelation of the Lord to you, in other words, draws nigh. And isn't really that what we want? You and I pray a lot to God about things that we believe He needs to take care of in our lives. And God does care about those things. But in the end, what good is it going to do for God to take care of things if we don't know Him? And we don't have this happening between us and God in our hearts. What, God, what good would it do me, for instance, if God gives me a nice big job that pays me lots of money that I can live out the rest of my life working at, what good is that to me if I don't even know Him? God is not generally going to bypass this knowledge of Himself in our hearts and do a whole lot of things. Now, He may once in a while. But He wants everything to come back to this as a basis. If you sow your life into God's hands... What will come from that as a harvest of a knowledge of Jesus? It will, resurrection life will come in you. You will know Him. You'll be set free. And then can we see how that will dovetail out into things? Because we're going to be able to walk with God then in things. And we're not going to mess them up by taking our own agenda into those matters. And so this is where the rubber meets the road again. Jesus in us is the harvest, or to put it another way, we will be raised in him. Now, James talks about not grudging against one another and so forth. 
But down in verse 11, he begins again to get back to this idea of harvest. Behold, we count them happy which endure. In other words, wait for this. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end or the purpose of the Lord and that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And if you remember the story of Job, there's 48 chapters of Job under intense trial and pressure. And I guess if you could sum up Job's entire attitude during that time, it would be, why, O Lord? That's sort of what Job wanted to know, why this was happening to him. And you have these arguments going back and forth between Job and his friends. Well, I'm not going to turn to Job, but what we find at the end of the book of Job is that Job says, I didn't understand, but now I do, and we have the reason why he understands. He says, now, Lord, I see you. How many know that when we see God, a whole bunch of other stuff becomes clear? See, we ask God to give us answers to certain things in life. If he won't solve the problem, then we ask him, why, God, won't you solve the problem? Very natural to do that. I don't think it's a wicked thing to do necessarily, as long as we're seeking the Lord and his will. But we ask God to give us answers, and God is saying all the while to us, well, I don't really want to give you answers right now. What I want to do is give you myself. I want to give you a revelation of myself. And I can tell you from personal experience that when you begin to see Jesus, you begin to understand a whole lot of stuff about what's happening in your life. Because all of a sudden when you see Jesus, you have an eternal perspective on things. If you know God, you have a greater understanding of what God is doing. This is all part of the greater harvest that God wants to bring by virtue of us sowing into his hands, sowing ourselves, and by virtue of the fact that we would let go to him. So James concurs with Paul. So what does it mean, then, with that as a background, ultimately, to let go to God? Well, first of all, I want to talk about a couple of things it does not mean. Because I think that we get misconceptions about what it means to let go to God. And here's some stuff that letting go to God does not mean. Number one thing that letting go to God does not mean is simply resigning yourself to your fate. This is a kind of an attitude of unbelief, whether we know it or not, where we're, we've been trying to get God to do what we want to do, want Him to do, and we've, try, we've finally figured out that God's not going to do what we want Him to do. And so we just throw up our hands and say, well, it's no use trying this anymore. I guess I'll have to surrender to God. It's sort of like when Peter and the disciples spent all night fishing. Remember there after the uh, resurrection and they caught nothing? And Jesus came along and he said, I want you to go back out and lower your nets. And Peter says, we have fished all night and caught nothing, but nevertheless, if you say we should go back out and fish, I guess we will. Well, you know, we can cut some Peter we can cut Peter some slack because we can see ourselves in him, but can we see that at that point really isn't faith? It's not faith to try to win a battle with God and then when you figure out you lose, you give up. There's nothing about that that's faith. You can do the same thing. You can resign yourself to your faith to your uh, fate 
with regard to any bully on the block. He's bigger than you. You can't win, so you give up. That's not faith. And that's not what we're to do with God. In fact, we could draw a little bit of a principle out of this. We are never to give up on God. We are always to give up to God. So in other words, we're never to give up on the promise that God's going to get His will. He wants to do His will more than we do. So true surrender is a surrender unto God for His will, for whatever He wants to do in us. True surrender is not a matter of giving up because we didn't get our way. And that's a good distinction to draw. Now another thing that letting go is not... It is not supposed to be something we do because we're afraid not to do it. A lot of us have this idea of God sitting in heaven demanding that we give up and let go. And so we say, okay, I guess we'd better let go to God. That's not faith either. In fact, that is based in error. That's not the kind of God that we're dealing with. So giving up and letting go should not be the outcome of fear or being afraid of God. Another thing that letting go is not, is it is not simply a state of mind that we create. And I say that because a lot of Eastern religion has invaded the church today, and people are now being taught to condition themselves to get in these different moods and attitudes toward God. It had nothing to do with faith. This is about a relationship with God. Another thing that letting go to God is not, it is not a heroic, self-righteous act. A lot of people are willing to go to the ends of the earth for God, but only because it makes them feel good about themselves. I was the one that let go for God. How many remember, we'll go back to Peter again, right before the crucifixion. Though all forsake you, Lord, I will never leave you. That's what Peter said. What was it, within the hour he was denying him three times? You know, if we think that we're going to get something out of letting go to God, we might be tempted to do it in order to be self-righteous or to get that thing we think we're going to get. Which leads me to the next principle that letting go is not. Letting go to God is not some legalistic hoop to jump through in order to achieve what we think is our desired end. In other words, let's see. Here's how we might reason. Let's see. God said if I let go... He'll raise me up and I'll have his will. Okay, I'll let go because that's what I want. Well, it sounds good, doesn't it? Because it's not wrong to want the will of God. It's not wrong to want to be raised up with Christ and to know Christ. But it has to carry the idea of complete relinquishment unto God rather than what we're going to get out of it in the long run. So letting go to God is not any of those things. So what is letting go to God in the end? I mean, in the final analysis, what is it? Well, first of all, can we see, after I've said all of this, that you and I really are never going to let go to God unless we believe and trust Him. Now that has to be the most simplistic overstatement that I could make. But you and I are not going to relinquish ourselves into the hands of God unless we believe. In fact, you could even make a formula out of it, I suppose. 
to the degree that we trust God, we will let go to Him. Or we could turn it around in a very positive way, and we could say that the outcome of believing and trusting God, the outcome of believing that God will be faithful to me, is going to be that we let go every time. Now, if you think that through, it only makes sense. If I begin to see the truth about God, and I embrace that truth about God, that He is faithful, what's it going to result in? It's going to result in letting go. How could it not? He's God, and I'm seeing the truth about Him. It's not going to result in me holding myself back from Him. John 8.32 is one of the most familiar passages of Scripture in the Bible. Everybody will recognize it as soon as I start to read it. It ties into this matter of letting go. In John 8, verse 32, actually 31, Jesus says to the disciples, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples. And look at what the outcome will be. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, what truth? Well, the truth about God. Jesus Christ also said, I am the truth. So if we're talking about knowing the truth, it means we're talking about knowing God. Now, if we know God, Jesus said, that is going to set us free. But how many see that in a very real sense of the word, that to be set free really means to let go? In other words, when I begin to see the truth about God, I'm going to let go of everything, everything that I thought had a hold of me. See, we have this idea that, and I'm talking about Christians here, we have this idea that we are in bondage to a whole bunch of things. And I'm not saying Christians can't be into bondage in in different areas in their life. But, According to the Bible, the root of everything that has hold of us is the fact that we have hold of something. We have hold of it. See, we think we have all these chains that are wrapped around us and we can't move. God is really saying, in Christ I've broken those. And the chains that you think are wrapped around you, actually you're holding on to those tightly. And what we would see if we would see the truth is, number one, that Jesus has broken all bondages, and by his blood we are free. And then we would begin to walk in a way where we would practice being free and actually be free. If you look at what ails people today, and there's lots of things that are bondages. We can think of alcoholism and stuff. But how about self-righteousness? How about this ego thing that has a hold of so many people. Why do those things, why are those things able to anchor them, themselves in people's lives and control them? Well, ultimately it's because the people themselves won't let go to God. Sin of the human race is unbelief. You let go to God, bondages start to fall. I remember one time, 
I ran into some people that believed in this utter and complete nonsense that Christians can be subject, subject to generational curses. This is an absolute lying teaching in the body of Christ today. If you are born again, you are no longer of the Adam generation, and that pretty much breaks them all. I don't want to get off on this today, but what I want to say is this. They would get people and sit them in a chair, and they would pray that God would break a generational curse in somebody's life. And my response to that is, what do you think Jesus did on the cross that you're going to add to now by praying? And here's my point. If someone came to me and they said to me, I am bound by alcoholism, I am bound by this, I am bound to that, will you pray to me? I will not pray that God's going to break them of a generational curse. I'll tell you what I will pray. I will pray that God would help them be broken or set free from the bondage of unbelief. You read Romans 6, you cannot emerge from that chapter without seeing that in Christ all bondages are broken. The fact that we don't walk in freedom is because of John, what John 8.32 says. We don't see the truth. We don't see that Jesus has paid the price and that he has broken the entire power of Satan and of the flesh. And it takes us time to learn that and have those revelations and walk in it and experience it. doesn't belie the fact. If Jesus died once for all, then isn't it a fact that once for all, everything he died to break is broken? It's just a matter of us coming into that, which is part of all this sowing, part of all this letting go to God. The core of what holds us is our desire to be boss and our desire to own our own life. And it isn't always a matter of rebellion. We don't shake our fist against God and say, God, I want to be my own God. God, I want to be my own boss. But it's a matter of just holding back sometimes, isn't it? We just don't know to let go or we can't seem to because we're afraid of what's going to happen if we do. So what are we supposed to let go of? We're supposed to let go of ourselves, of everything about us to God. We're supposed to really even let go of our worth to God. God fills us with Christ. How many see we're going to have all the worth we need and it's going to be based in Him? We have to let go of our ego. We have to let go of things. We have to let go of our past. We have to let go of everything about us and fall into the hands of the living God. Talk about things. Again, we tend to believe that God wants to uh, deprive us of things or cause us to let go of things. How many see that the things are just the mechanic part? They're just, they're just the dynamic. It's the holding on that's the problem versus the letting go. It's not the thing that's involved. If God wants me to let go of my bank account... How many see that it's not about the bank account? It's about me. It's about letting go. Jesus, for instance, said, He that is faithful over little can qualify to be faithful over the much. How many see that the issue there is not the little or the much? The issue is the faithfulness. People can 
be in unbelief over the most minuscule, tiny things imaginable, or over the biggest things imaginable. The issue is not the big thing or the little thing. The issue is whether I am putting that in the place of God. And that's why when you find yourself in situations, maybe you hate your job, maybe family problem, maybe financial problem, all those things are things are things that God is using. But the issue is who's in charge? Have I let go of it? Have I sowed it into the hand of God? And if I have, then it gets back to whether I've sowed myself, really. Because in the end, if I'm a rotten person or if I have a terrible relationship with God, how many see that it's not going to matter if I change jobs? In fact, if my relationship with God is wrong, what if God gave me everything in this world that I ever wanted? Well, at best, what's going to happen in that case is I'm going to still be out of God's will and my attitude toward Him, but there's not going to be anything in my life that's bringing it out. But I will not have changed. So rather than say, God, take me out of here and put me over here, we ought to be saying, God, put something in me. In other words, bring me into a knowledge of Jesus Christ so I can function in this situation. Bring your kingdom and your lordship into it. Live in it to your glory. And then God will be free to change the situation if he wants to. We need to realize that in the life of a Christian, that is why God's allowing much difficulty in our lives. He doesn't just play games with us. It isn't for him to say, here, I'm going to put you in this difficult situation, figure it out and let me know how it's going. God's saying, I want you to walk with me through this and come into my will and purpose in this difficult situation. He wants us, in other words, to let go. To let go to him. And usually in these difficult situations, not only does it call for faith from us, but I have found that in these difficult situations, God builds faith in us. The more we turn to God, the more faith is built in us in a situation. You want God to build in you faith, expect to be put in a situation where you don't have enough faith for it. And as you walk through it, God will build it little by little by little as you turn to Him. Or, in other words, keep sowing. Do not grow weary in well-doing. Now, if you look at what I'm saying here about letting go versus holding on, sowing versus not sowing, what you end up coming back to is a very familiar principle all through the Word of God. We've spoken about this before. We're really talking about nothing more complicated than losing your life to find it. Matthew 16, where Jesus was talking to his disciples, uh, verse 24, it says there, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. In other words, let him deny his right to have his life his way. And of course, I think sometimes God would like to interject in parentheses in the form of a question, are you yet convinced that doing it your way isn't going to work? And if we're not, I guess we get another lap around the mountain. I've taken a few laps in my time. 
And then when we finally get convinced, and that's all part of the process, it's how God teaches us. He wears us down. He brings us to the end of ourselves. He says, are you done yet? And when we finally say, yes, Lord, then he says, okay, let it go. He says, whoever will lose his life or deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, uh, you know, you have to do that to be his disciple or come after him. And in verse 25, he says, for whoever would save his life, in other words, hold on to himself, his way, shall lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. I guess perhaps one of the most incredible tragedies of all is the fact that every single thing that human beings hold on to in this world and in this life is one day all going to pass away. It's all going down. And we'll see how it works out in the eternal ages, but I would have to suggest, based on the Word of God, that if everything we would hold on to is going down, guess who's going to go with it if we hold on to it? What do we make ourselves part of? Well, read in the Bible and find out what's going to happen to that. And you'll see that it really is true that whatever you sow, you reap. You know, Jesus said, you live for this world, the whole world's going to pass away. Where's, where's that going to leave us? But if you hold to God, if you let go of the things of this world and let God determine those things, and incidentally, He promises to provide, doesn't He? But if you let go, then He can provide and it won't harm you. don't want to get off on this, but again, if I was a person who was guilty of uh, the love of money. Just use money as an example. I could use many other things. But if I was happened to be somebody that had a particular problem in that area, love of money, can we see that until God gets to the root of that and sets me free from that, how can God possibly bless me financially? until he sets me free from the love of money. What's he going to do? Look down on me and say, well, David's, you know, in bondage to money, but, you know, uh, he's giving money, so I guess I'll have to bless him with money. See how easy it is to bypass heart attitude matters and relationship with God and get all bound up in a legalistic principle? We say, God, you said if I give, you'll give to me. And then when God doesn't hop to it, we get angry at Him. And God is saying, I did say that, but it's premised on the fact that my kingdom is governing you. In other words, it's premised on the fact that you need to be set free first from the love of money, from living for this life. When we let ourselves go to God, when we lose our lives to find them, we are doing exactly what really is the principle that I've come back to again and again and again as we've covered Galatians. What we are essentially saying when we let go, when we sow, when we lose our lives, we are saying, God, whatever it takes. How may I say it's the same principle again? We're letting it go. We're saying to God, God, I know that you have not appointed me to make something happen. God, I know that you have not appointed me to bring to pass all these things that you want to do. What you have appointed me to do, God, is to let go. 
You have appointed me, God, to surrender myself into your hands for whatever it takes. How many see that is sowing? That is letting go. That isn't me promising God that I'm going to live perfectly. We'll break that promise in the first five minutes. What that is, is it is saying, God, that I no longer belong to myself. Isn't that biblical? Paul says you're not your own. It's saying to God, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. I relinquish myself to you, God, for whatever it takes for you to get the harvest that you want. The harvest beginning with an inner revelation of Jesus and then dovetailing out to the rest of the will of God in our lives. Whatever it takes, Lord, you bring that. Give me the grace to yield. That's how you let go. You get on that altar and you tell God whatever it takes. Now, as I mentioned, we won't do this, but to the extent that we really trust God. There's a really neat scripture in 2 Corinthians 1. It's one of these scriptures that's really easy to pass right by because we just don't stop and think about what it really means. God says, I am faithful. I am more faithful than you could ever imagine. But I have one purpose, and that is Christ in you. Get into business and I'll take care of all the rest. He says, I want you to do one thing. I want you to let go. I want you to pick up the cross. I want you to surrender. Now, notice how certain, I'm going to read this scripture from 2 Corinthians, charging in, uh, starting in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 19. Notice how certain and what the faithfulness of God is based on. Paul says there, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timothy, the Son of God, that is, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. This is Paul's way of saying that every word that we have preached about Jesus is true, it's the truth, and it is not uncertain. In other words, not yes, no, yes, no. This is Paul's expression. He's saying it's all yes. And Jesus is available to you all. God is saying yes to you all. Now notice verse 20. For all of the promises of God in Him, that's the key phrase, all the promises of God are in Him, yes, and in Him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now here's the question. Haven't you fallen into the trap? I certainly have, that when I get into a difficulty or I need to find the will of God in a matter, how easy it is at that point, is it not, to think that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in me? In other words, don't we think that God is looking at us and trying to find a yes and amen in us whereby he can justify keeping his promises? We think we have to measure up or achieve some kind of a standard before the promises of God kick in. Now, I'm not saying we don't have to obey God or believe Him. But what I am saying is, usually when we sow our lives into God's hands and nothing seems to happen, don't we start to wonder what we're doing wrong? It's not necessarily a bad thing to do either. 
We need to examine ourselves and make sure that we're obeying God and believing Him before the Holy Spirit. But what this verse is saying, and this is the point, is that the fulfilling of the promises of God ultimately do not depend on us, they depend on Him. In other words, God is not faithful to us because we're faithful to Him. He's faithful to us because He's faithful. And when we sow ourselves to God and let go to God for whatever it takes, we are essentially saying to Him, God, do whatever it takes so you can be faithful to me. In other words, God, if there's a reason why you can't bring your promise to pass in my life, Lord, if you know something about me that I don't see, deal with it, whatever it takes. And I dare say there's plenty that God will reveal, and even then we're going to find out half the stuff God's revealed, we can't do anything about it anyway, about ourselves. And he says, let that go, surrender that to me for the work of the cross, for the work of the Holy Spirit. So God says, I will be faithful to you to the complete disregard of you, but part of my faithfulness to you is that I'm going to do a work in you that will justify my faithfulness to you. God's not going to bless people that disobey Him and don't believe Him. But if we're asking God to do whatever it takes, He's going to work into us all of those things so that we can be blessable so that God can have his way in us. Said that the primary harvest is Christ in us. Well, can we see that if that's God's priority, the forming of Christ in us to create us in Christ Jesus, can we see that there's no way that what's not going to come along with a package is a relationship with God that he can bless? If God's forming Christ in me, God's going to be able to keep his promises to me. Because by that time, he's going to have me in a relationship with him where those promises fulfilled are going to be justified to his glory. And you'll notice there that it does say in verse 20 that all the promises of God are in him, yes, and in him, amen, in God, unto what? Unto the glory of God, by us. In other words, God wants to do his will to his glory in us and through us. And all the promises of God are guaranteed in God, not only uh, to do that work in us, but also then through us. Bottom line, God says, let go so I can do my will. Not difficult when you boil it down to that. That's what it boils down to in the end. Jesus is Lord. He wants to be Lord of us. And He wants to spread His kingdom. One other scripture, John 3. John 3 contains the passage where Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about being born again. And there's a little fragment here which I think reveals so much as to how this letting go means, uh, works, and what it all boils down to. Jesus is describing to Nicodemus what it means to be born again. He says in verse 7 in John 3, Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, because the wind blows wherever it wants to. And you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it's coming from and whether it's, where it's going to. 
so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is very often likened to a wind. And you even see that in the coming of the Holy Spirit in the upper room. In fact, I think it would be very right to say that that mighty rushing wind that blew into that upper room in Acts 2, that mighty rushing wind is still blowing. It's still blowing. And if you read this passage, what does Jesus say about that wind? It says that this mighty rushing wind, this Holy Spirit, does or blows wherever it, or wherever he really, wants to. Who does it sound like is in charge? In other words, God is likening himself through the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, just to be like a wind that blows wherever God wants it to blow. And if you see these hurricanes and things that have been going on, you can see that can be pretty powerful at times. So the Holy Spirit's like a wind. That shows the absolute sovereignty of God. God makes His Spirit go wherever He wants it to. Now, we have wind in this world. There are two things you and I can do with the wind, physically speaking, and it really applies uh, to the Spirit. Number one, we can harness the wind and try to use it for our own purposes. People do that all the time. And physically, good thing, because you harness energy and so forth. You can make the wind work for you. Spiritually, not such a good thing. Just try to harness the Holy Spirit and try to use the Holy Spirit for your own purposes and you'll be out of the will of God before the echo dies. That's one thing, though, that you can do with a physical wind. You can harness it and you can try to use it for your own purposes. What's the other thing you can do with wind or air? Well, you can let it carry you. In other words, instead of harnessing the wind and trying to make it do what you want, you can go along with the wind and essentially ride on it. Now, can we see a parallel there to the Spirit? God has never said that He was going to pour out His Holy Spirit so that people, and I'm talking about Christian people, God never has given Christian people permission to take a hold of the moves of the Spirit of God and use them for their purposes, even if they think that's God's will. Ananias and Sapphira tried that. They siphoned off the move of God and tried to use it for their own thing. God never said to do that. No, he says the wind blows where it wants and... God wants to carry you. So, contrast between holding on and letting go. We are not to harness the Holy Spirit and use the things of God for our own agenda. What we are to do is allow the Holy Spirit of God to carry us along into the will of God. Jesus said the wind blows where it wills. How many know God knows what he's doing? God has a purpose for each life. And we're to get carried with that. What did Jesus say to Peter? Won't turn there. At the end of uh, Gospel of John, John 21, you can look it up later. You know, Peter was this headstrong guy that wanted to direct traffic for Jesus. In other words, he wanted to harness that wind for his own agenda. Jesus said to Peter, when you get older, it's not going to be like you 
were when you, you were younger, where you went and did what you wanted to do, Peter. He says, when you get older, it's going to be like somebody binds you and takes you where you would not have gone otherwise. In other words, the Holy Spirit is going to determine the outcome. And this is all part of what it means to sow. When you sow to God, He determines what becomes of you. That's not a bad thing, is it? Now, again, the whatever it takes, attitude of faith, I call that sometimes the scary prayer because it's kind of scary not to know what's going to become of you. But that fear dissipates when you begin to trust the Lord. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Him. God can't do us wrong. So let's turn back to Galatians 6 to close for today. We can see that when Paul's talking about sowing and reaping, he's talking about an awful lot more than just planting corn or just about doing things. He's talking about where your life is going in Christ. He says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, he shall also reap. For he that sows to his flesh, in other words, he that sows and invests in his own life, his own way, will reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit, this wind, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting, and everything really that's included in it. So God says, do you want to find that kind of a harvest, fundamental to which is an inner revelation of Christ himself? If that's the kind of harvest that we want, God says, let go. Let go to God for his will, for his glory, and for this great work of the Holy Spirit, whereby he will accomplish all of this in our hearts. And God says at the end of the age, guess what happens? Jesus comes, he puts the sickle in, and we have a big harvest, don't we? And everything that he did here will be released on another plane for the eternal ages.